Hey, podcast family. Welcome back to an episode that we are calling Obi Schmorgesborg. First, we said a cornucopia, but then that was a little too Hunger Games-ish. Wasn't that called a cornucopia? What was that thing called? Well, they all went met in the middle and then all their heads started exploding. Short to say, we are not calling it that. Also, cornucopia just makes you think of like Thanksgiving and it's September. So again, can't get up ahead of the bit. All right, back to our Obi Schmorgesborg. This is going to be rapid fire, a couple of, of topics that, uh, well, not a couple, several topics that are in response to some of your questions. And we're going to talk about a study that just came out uh, this month, September 2023, in the Green Journal, which is new, not new. Uh, and part of this discussion, we're also going to talk about uh, organic 50 gram glucose tolerance tests. Is that a thing? Because some patients have asked for that. Okay, no comment. I'm just going to let that go. And we're going to see if that's legit or not. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, glucose intolerance in pregnancy. That's the first thing. Okay, for that's the article from September 2023. And just throwing it out there now. Nothing new because we actually covered that back in 2019. I'm going to give you that reference as we move on. So, I mean, it's good to be validated, all right? Because in 2019, we did this uh, this episode on one abnormal value on the three-hour test. And that, hey, the good news is you pass your test, but you are not out of harm's way, all right? That's a warning flag. Well, that was in 2019. Fast forward 2023 to the Green Journal this month in September, and oh, lo and behold, it's exactly what we said in 2019. Vindicated! Oh, my goodness. All right, let's put back our humility <laughs> and get on with our other topics. So that's going to be one thing that we're going to cover. Second, the organic 50-gram glucose tolerance test is organic. It's going to be much better. We're going to talk about that. And the third thing we're going to talk about, um, mycoplasma uh, genitalium in pregnancy. And like, why are we talking about that? Well, because it's a response to some uh, one of our podcast family members' questions is, hey, what happens if we find that in pregnancy? Um, you can't really treat that, can you? Because you're supposed to use dual agent therapy. And the problem is one of the agents that you use is doxycycline. So what do we do with that? I'm going to answer that. In this episode, what else are we going to talk about? I thought we we're going to talk about something else. Is that it? Uh, I think that's it for now. Uh, oh, oh, we're also going to do pet peeves. I'm going to tell you about two studies that came out uh, super recently. One just came out today that are my pet peeves. And I'll tell you why in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I think you're all going to get a kick out of this one. So let's do the two pet peeve publications that are fresh, like they're smoking hot right out of the press box. All right. And I call these pet peeves because 
uh, and as, as I posted on our Facebook page, I'm a big fan, as you know, I hope you know, of evidence-based medicine. We do a, a, a quite a bit of our of, of a quite a bit of studies ourselves. It takes a lot of work to do that. Some studies, some you know, trial draft publications never make it out of the draft office. They get asked for a bunch of rewrites, and we just kill it. Like I don't have it in me. And some keep going to publication. My point is, it's a it's a big detailed process, right? We're trying to change the way. Uh, that we practice for the better. So I'm all in favor of new studies that tell us new things. I mean, that's why we're doing this whole podcast thing, for heaven's sakes, is to keep us evidence-based. Why? Why? Because medicine moves fast. Wow, that was so cheesy. I'm feeling kind of weird today. It's hump day. It's Wednesday. I've got a whole day on call. I am on call right now, so I'm at the hospital. I've, I kicked the residents out of one of their rooms because it has better acoustics than the other, hoping that Mike can still fix the audio. Uh, but I've got a section coming up, then I've got uh, some noon meeting, and then I've got medical student lectures in the afternoon. I'm talking to a student group in the afternoon. It's like, like I'm whining, right? I just want to have got too many things in my day. I've got more things on my schedule than day allows sometimes, and it gets uh, away from you. What was I talking about? Oh, oh, the heck. Okay. So back to the two pet peeve articles. Here it is, guys. No joke. This came out. I'm looking at it right now. 22 hours ago. Woohoo. 22 hours ago. Less than a day ago. And this comes out of the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force. So let me stop right there. They do a great job. They're part of the AHQ, uh, um, uh, Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research. They are fantastic. I've got friends who serve on that. So thank you for your service on the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force. They do a valuable job looking at a bunch of different data across disciplines and then make recommendations. That's fantastic, okay? ACOG recognizes them as an opinion. Uh, sometimes it agrees with them. Sometimes it doesn't. But anyway, U.S. Preventive Service Task Force is, is legit. Is a legit organization from... Uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, okay? Great. Well, on September the 19th, 2023, this was just yesterday, they actually finalized a, a recommendation for us in pregnancy for women's health. All right. Okay, what's going on? Uh, here we go. What, what did they say? Well, they finalized their, quote, recommendations for hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, comma, screening, end quote. Okay, so I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm digging it. Hypertensive disorder in pregnancy. What do you got to say? Okay, what, what are we doing? Well, here's their recommendation. By the way, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I actually did this as a little video on our podcast Facebook page back in February when this was a draft guidance, all right? So see how slow this thing goes? This was in February, and then now September the 19th, so we're talking about seven months later, this thing is final, seven months. See how slow this thing goes? And if you're wondering why, I can walk through the process. I'll have to say it's long. They make a draft recommendation. Well, first they look for data, make the draft recommendation. They let it sit and simmer, kind of stewing the juices there a minute. Then they put it out for public opinion. It goes online for about three to four months. People go and gripe on it or they praise it, whatever. Then it goes back to the committee. They take a look at all the comments like on Facebook, right? Like they scroll through all the comments. This is terrible or this is fantastic, whatever. Uh, they compile it. They adjust as necessary. They go look for professional society opinion. And then it gets drafted as a final wreck. Y'all get that? That is seven months. All right, so seven months, what did the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force say about screening for hypertension in pregnancy? Here it is. Quote, the rationale and the recommendation is to screen for hypertensive disorders of pregnancy with blood pressure measurements throughout pregnancy. End quote. Wow. 
I'm so glad that this came out because they would never would have assumed to me, guys. It never would have come to my mind to do blood pressure checks on my patient, on my pregnant patients at every visit. I just never thought of that. This is fantastic. All right. I don't mean to be the sarcasm thing. I hope you know that's kind of tongue in cheek, but did we really need seven months of work? Seven months of going back and forth to the draft table to remind us that every patient who's pregnant should get a blood pressure check in the office when they're with you? I mean, we covered that. We've covered hypertension a lot in this episode, but who in the world go sees a pregnant patient and doesn't measure their blood pressure? I don't know. I, I'm curious. Do you know people? I mean, message me if you're like, hey, my, my, my uncle Bob is an OBGYN. He never checks blood pressures. Wow. So again, thank you to U.S. Preventive Service Task Force. Um, all right, I'm going to take it. I'm going to listen to what you say, and I'm going to screen for hypertensive disorders of pregnancy with blood pressure measurements throughout pregnancy. It looks like I was ahead of the game on that one. Anyway, they gave this recommendation not a grade A, but a grade B. Um, so we'll just let that sit there. Oh, thank you. All right, so we have not yet got into your questions yet. We're not responding to that yet because I'm still in my pet peeve things that have come out. Right, that was one of them. And I, look, guys, I'm not pissy. I'm not angry. I just, uh, I just, it just makes you really scratch your head a little bit. Like, man, people do a lot of work for some weird stuff. I remember it had to be early 2000s where there was this big meta analysis, no joke that excessive soda drinking and inactivity was tied to weight gain. No, you don't say. My goodness, I can't drink 12 cans of soda during the day, uh, sit in my booty, and expect to lose weight. That is mind-blowing. That was a systematic review and meta-analysis, guys. I'm saying, thank goodness for the researchers. Hey, they found they found a project to work on, but damn. I mean, no, did we not know that already? Which goes into this next study. So uh, a publication that came out on September the 15th, 2023, that is five days ago from the Cochrane Review. You all know I like me some Cochrane Review. I think they do a great job. I reference them frequently. Uh, a buddy of mine just came off that uh, assignment. Uh, thank you for a Cochrane Review, folks. But listen to this one. The Cochrane Review took a look at, quote, timed intercourse for couples trying to conceive, end quote. You can already see where this is going, right? All right, so let, let's just hit it to the punch here because I don't want to belittle this any more than I already am. But they took a look at RCTs, and, and here's a question. Hmm, I wonder if timed intercourse, meaning having sex around ovulation, can actually increase your chances of getting pregnancy as opposed to sex any other time what? You're, you're kidding me. This was a focus of a Cochrane review. Did we need, was anybody confused about this? Please message me if you were confused that having sex outside of your fertile window does not help you get pregnant. Okay. So was, this was RCTs, RCTs looking at over or close to 2,500 women or couples. Right. And so uh, of the studies, surprisingly, again, so thankful for this info because I never would have thought of this by myself that, yeah, having sex timed to ovulation by using ovulation prediction kits called the fertile window seems to increase your chance of getting pregnant over random sex at all. That, you know, if I had a little clap track, I would play the lap clap track right here. I mean, just woo, fan, fantastic. Yeah! 
oh my goodness, please do not turn me into like the Cochrane database uh, police or something. I mean, I'm not really making fun of it, guys. I'm really not. I, I, I Am I? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just making the point that... Uh, he, he just again i'm so thankful for great studies things that go wow i didn't know that like one that we're going to get into today that we kind of touched on in 2019 uh that one abnormal glucose value is can actually lead to some adverse pregnancy issues like even shoulder dystocia that's a big deal right we need to know that that's that's impacting care but this one i thought we knew this already i thought that having sex in the fertile window was the way to do it if you're trying to get pregnant um for like, oh, I don't know, 50 years? I don't know. What do I know? The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, now that we've cleared that nonsense, uh, oh man, I, I don't know what to do with that. Send me a message. Let me know what you think. Um, I mean, honestly, was some of this new info to you? If it is, great. I'm glad you got it now. That's good. How about that? Yes, I'm glad you got it now. Uh, but this next little review comes from uh, Rick, who's a, an OBGYN, part of our podcast family. And it was actually in response to the PCOS in pregnancy episode, all right, where, oh, yeah, you probably screen early, even though that's controversial, uh, and that PCOS patients tend to have a higher risk, of course, of, of gestational diabetes. But here's the catch. What happens when you have a patient on a two-step algorithm, right, the 50-gram the screening and then the 100-gram uh, glucose tolerance test, uh, when you have one patient who fails the screen, which again, doesn't mean anything, but then does the three hour and has one abnormal value, right? Remember, of course, universal standard, whether you're using carpenter Kausten, which is the lower cutoff values or national diabetic data group, which is the traditional, the, the slightly higher values. In other words, they have more, um, sensitivity, but a little bit less specificity compared to carpenter Kausen when they have one abnormal value, right? Two abnormal values of any of them gives you the diagnosis of gestational diabetes. And then you go through diet counseling um, and, and a trial of diet and lifestyle modification. And if that fails, then you start them on medication that's called A2 diabetes. If lifestyle modification wins, then that's called A1 diabetes, all right? Some hospitals use the fact that if, if one of the two values that they fail is the fasting, then they are automatically called A2 because their lack of responding to, uh, their chance of not responding to lifestyle modifications and diet is a little bit higher. So they just bypass the whole thing, say, I'm going to call you A2, and, and that's the end of that. But the traditional way of calling it A1 or A2 is after diet intervention, see if they can control it first, and then they split off into A1 or A2. 
everybody good, right? So you fail the one hour, that's a 50 gram, boom, you get kicked over to the three hour, you have two abnormal values, lifestyle modification, we give you one or two weeks, typically just one week, get it right, check your sugars, and if they're still not at goal, then uh, we'll call you A2, and if they are at goal, we'll call you A1, all right? Okay, good. But the issue is with one abnormal value. Well, this has been going on for over a decade. So I do want to call your attention to our 2019 episode where we covered this. Now, we covered the data, obviously, up to that time, okay? And and it, it's very clearly shown that one abnormal value has a higher risk of LGA, uh, birth trauma, which includes shoulder dystocia, of course, clavicular fracture, herbs, palsy, and need for things like uh, phototherapy for the child because big babies have polycythemia. They break down red blood cells. So everything that goes with big baby doesn't really have any tie-in to maternal consequences, right? There's been some relation to maybe it increases the risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, but that's a little washy. The main issue here is one abnormal value on the on this standard three-hour test raises fetal risk. And the maternal risk is is almost nil. It may be, may not be there for hypertension, but it's really a fetal issue. Let me get into two publications that just came out, one last month in August, and then one that came out uh, this month, September 2023, in the Green Journal, that, again, guys, we're, ve- we're vindicated, we're validated. See, we gave this message, what is that, 2023, 2019, was that four years ago? See, if you're part of the podcast community, if you're part of Clinical Pearls, you would have known this in 2019. I just sent a quick text to Mike, our sound guy, our engineer, and he said that that episode was done on March 7th, 2019. March 7th, 2019. So you can go back in our archives and look at that one. But let's do first the article from this month, and then we'll do the one from last month because uh, this one is for singletons. The one from last month had to do with twins. The point is, whether it's a singleton or multifetal, this data holds. Y'all get that? How nice is that, huh? So this is now a a comprehensive uh, review, either in singletons or in twins, two different studies, that one abnormal value leads to some birth weight issues and birth-related trauma, okay? So the publication from this month is by first listed author Jacqueline Maya, and the title is Gestational Glucose Intolerance and Birth Weight-Related Complications, okay? Now, it's exactly as you would think. Uh, they did. They defined it as everybody does. You failed a one hour at 140, so they used National Diabetic Data Group cutoffs, and then they went on to the three-hour 100-gram glucose tolerance test. And those who failed one abnormal value were called glucose intolerant, okay? Glucose intolerant. If you fail two, that's easy. That's having gestational diabetes. Fine. Well, those that had one abnormal value... Uh, obviously, as you say right off the bat, we, we know that they had a higher risk of LGA babies, and it was statistically significant, all right? So the amount of over 90%, so remember that that large for gestational age is a percentile, it's 90%, regardless of where we are for gestational age, whereas macrosomia is a set number. Macrosomia is 4,000 grams or more, okay? So macrosomia is a set grammage, and then LGA or SGA is a percentile, well, those that failed one abnormal value, 
the odds ratio of having an LGA child. Now remember, this is based just on one abnormal glucose value. That odds ratio was 1.77. So I, I get that. It's not like it's five. However, the confidence interval, the 95% confidence interval was 1.5 to 2.08. And you've heard me say it before, the 1.77 wouldn't be all that much of a big deal. It is higher, but I'm like, meh. But it did, the confidence interval did uh, touch two, all right? Now, remember, this is not like a, a huge, not a tenfold increased risk of macrosomia. But, but again, it's a trend that adds to that body of evidence that started back like in 2013, okay? And some odds ratios have put uh, that value with one abnormal glucose tolerance uh, at, at 2. Some put it at 2.5. The lowest that I've seen is about, is about a 1.5, all right? So this is kind of in the middle with an odds ratio of 1.77. And that p-value compared to those with uh, all three values that are normal, or I guess the four value including the fasting, that p-value was significant. It was less than 0.001. And of course, it would be one thing to just have LGA child, right? To have a baby who weighs a little bit more, you're like, meh. But it, that the weight isn't the issue. It's the friends that the weight brings, right? So that included higher rates of C-section, severe perinatal lax or oasis tears, shoulder dystocia, or clavicular fracture. Those are the, the issues here that come with LGA. And remember, even though this just came out September 2023 in the Green Journal, that, that there's, there's a whole body of data that supports this, including the one from last month that showed that this association also held true for twins. Did I say that the twin publication was in the gray journal, AJOG? Did I say that earlier? I don't remember. We have to go back and listen to that. Nonetheless, I'm not going back and editing that. Anyway, I misspoke. It was not in the gray journal. It's in Diabetes Research and Clinical Practice, right? But it was August 2023. I don't know if I said gray journal. I don't know. I'm a little distracted. Anyway, our diabetes uh, uh, research and clinical practice in August 2023, the lead author here is Pellet, right? And the title is Association Between One Abnormal Value on a Three-Hour Oral Glucose Tolerance Test and Adverse Perinatal Outcomes in Twins. So the idea is, hey, we know what happens in singletons, one abnormal value. Okay, you can get a big old kid with some uh, morbidity related to that. But what about in twins? Is that still valid? Well, the short of it is yes. According to this retrospective multi-center study, and they did the same thing. It was the uh, the two-step protocol, 50-gram screening, 100-gram three-hour test, and then finding those with one abnormal value, all right? They found, quote, this study provides evidence that women with twin gestation and one abnormal value on the three-hour glucose tolerance test are at increased risk of unfavorable neonatal outcomes. This was confirmed by multivariate logistic regression, end quote. So it's the same thing. Here, they had a higher risk of composite neonatal morbidity for at least one fetus, large for gestational age. It's the same thing. And oddly, those with one abnormal value were also found to have higher rates of preterm birth under 32 weeks. Now, I get it. It's a twin issue. They're already at risk of preterm birth. But remember, this is under multivariate logistic regression. So even for controlling for that, the only thing that popped up in those who delivered early was that, hmm, that's interesting. They had one abnormal value on the glucose tolerance test. So again, there is data not just in singletons, but in twin pregnancies as well. 
Ooh, here's a good question. Does it matter which value is abnormal? That's good, right? In other words, does it matter if it's the fasting or if it's like the second hour after the oral glucose uh, tolerance challenge? So which one is it? Well, this has been looked at on many, many occasions as well. I found one from January 2013, which is one of the earlier ones out of the Gray Journal. This was just a poster session. Uh, So it was a supplement uh, to the American Journal of OBGYN. And the title of this abstract poster is is exactly what we're talking about. One abnormal value in a glucose tolerance test. Does it matter which one? So the short answer is one abnormal value, period, in the three-hour glucose tolerance test has a link to LGA babies and the morbidities that that brings. All right? That's the short answer. However... That ratio, that risk, that odds ratio is even higher when that one value is indeed the fasting. Does that make sense? So if you go back to poster session number two from January 2023, that was poster session 286. Of course, I'll post this in our reference list. Uh, Niraj Shavan actually took a look at this and said, yeah, they're, they're all got some issues, but it seems to be highest um, when that one value is the fasting. So fasting hyperglycemia matters, but also how the body takes in and handles a glucose challenge is, is also important. All right, everyone, we come back. Let's just do a quick wrap up of is there an organic 50 gram oral glucose tolerance test? As we're talking about gestational diabetes and impaired glucose tolerance, this is a nice tie in, right? But one of our podcast family members did reach out, I think it was last week, and said, was it longer than that? It was some time ago and said, hey, I have a patient who's like super, super antsy about taking a regular 50 uh, gram test and it wants an organic one. Is that legit? Is, that, is there data on that? We'll answer that next. Oh, before we leave the issue of what to do with these patients with the one abnormal value, uh, I mean, they're not called gestational diabetics, right? They, they don't fulfill criteria. They only have one abnormal value. But because of this tie-in to LGA babies, there's two management uh, schemes that have been proposed, right? One is, hey, put them on nutritional counseling and have them check their sugars or at least give them nutritional info, right? So the good news is, hey, you pass, you don't have diabetes, but you have something going on, right? Something under the surface. So at least eat well, put them through the same diabetic education as if they had GDM. That's the floor. The next floor up, the next intervention is, well, have them check their sugars. At least do fastings, do something, uh, ideally fastings and, of course, the typical prosprandials. But picking your fingers it hurts. It's a pain in the ass. I get that, and we're not trying to punish patients, but we are trying to take care of them. So that's on the one hand is diet and sugar eval. The second, which is um, a little bit more laissez-faire but still involved, is to at least do a rate of growth ultrasound at 36 weeks so you can track growth because if it's elevated there, you can start making plans for, oh, we headed towards LGA and or macrosomia. And what does that look like? So on the one hand is nutritional uh, counseling and sugar checks. On the other is 
um, rate of growth. Ultrasounds, ideally, the most conservative evidence-based approach to these with one abnormal value is to not call them GDM, but do both of those. Give them diet uh, therapy, still do sugar checks, and do that rate of growth ultrasound to rule out LGA slash macrosomia. As we wrap up our quick smorgasbord of OB ideas, smorgasbord, that's a fun word to say smorgasbord. As we wrap this up, let's cover uh, one of our listeners' questions about the organic 50-gram glucose tolerance test. First of all, kudos to that patient. I mean, if a patient asks if they're that much into organic things that they're worried about their 50-gram glucose tolerance test, whether it's organic or not, uh, wow. I mean, that's commitment. That's seen something through, man. I mean, good for them. My goodness. Um, I'm all for, you know, I like healthy eating, which I absolutely do like uh, 40% of the time, but I wish I could do more. But damn, I love me those fast food burgers. They're so good. Uh, And fries are so good. Uh, I'm sure Michael edit that out. Please edit that out. Uh, What? Oh, yes. The 50 grams. So organic. So I've looked at the price tag for organic things at the store. I'm not paying for that. I got three kids, two in college. I'm not doing that. I'm pumping my kids full of chemicals and artificial things because it's cheaper. Oh my goodness, I didn't mean that. Mike, please edit that out. <laughs> Look, we try to eat healthy. I'm all for organic. But when I see the organic milk, it's like, I don't know what it is now, $7? Is that what it is now, one of our local stores? Dang. I mean, maybe it's easier for me to buy Betsy, and buy the cow, and just milk her myself. This organic pricing thing has gotten way out of hand. I have totally lost track of this thing. I apologize. Let's get back to our organic. Is 50 gram glucose tolerance an organic thing or not? Is that a legit thing? It absolutely is, for sure. What's important is that it's 50 grams and that it's glucose. That's all that matters. Actually, interesting point. If you if you take a look at uh, LabCorp's information on gestational diabetes, it says you can take the 50 gram glucola. Or the uh, fresh option uh, called the, the, the fresh 50-gram drink, I think it's sponsored by LabCorp, uh, it, it's totally fine. It's in, it's in the lab information. ACOG doesn't care what brand you get, whether it's organic or not. They want it to be 50 grams, glucose-based, and here's the catch. It has to be taken ideally within five minutes. Okay, so if you drink it over an hour and then it's not going to work. We're talking about a glucose bolus. So the important thing is that it's 50 grams, that it's glucose and that it's taken ideally uh, within five minutes. That's what matters. Remember in the past, we did an episode on jelly beans and the problem with jelly beans as an alternative is that you never know how much sugar is in each jelly bean. I mean, you have to have a company make this amount of jelly beans that equal without a question. You can't drop one on the floor. Uh, they have to equal 50 grams of sugar. Uh, and that's one of the catches is that uh, the different companies, you really don't know how much sugar it is per jelly bean. But all to say, yes, there is organic 50-gram glucola alternative. Uh, if you're asking for a data like, oh, we did the organic versus this one, I, I didn't find any because it's just that's just way down into the weeds and it really doesn't make a difference, all right? So 50 grams glucose taken within five minutes is what matter, not the brand. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. I had fun with this episode. I don't know about you. Oh my goodness. I, I don't, sometimes you get in weird moods. Do you do that? I'm in a weird mood today. It's Wednesday. It's hump day. I don't know. I still got the rest of the week to go on call. I'm in a weird mood. 
But as always, we stay with our commitment. We got an episode out. <laughs> all right, podcast family, we're thankful for you. Thanks for sending us your comments, your messages. Thanks for all of your great support. We just care for you so much. Thank you for that. And have a great rest of the week. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.